Information you can trust, stories you can relate to, and tips and tactics you can apply on your next adventure. Hunting, fishing, camping, and everything in between. This is the Battle Mountain Podcast. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning into the Battle Mountain Podcast. Today, I have Darren Christenberry on the show. Darren, thank you so much for taking the time out today to be on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. As as I told you a little bit before the podcast, I I could talk archery with someone probably longer than anyone should talk <laughs> archery. <laughs> yeah, that, it's pretty much day in and day out my life, my passion. Uh, I mean, I work in the industry, and archery it, it's my life, you know. So yeah, it's easy. It's easy for me to get lost in a conversation. And next thing you know, oh my gosh, we've been talking about it for two hours, you know. So. I do know. I do know. So kind of why, why don't you kind of just start you off uh, for the podcast and, and everyone out there listening. Um, just kind of introduce yourself and, and maybe kind of we can then we can dive into a little bit about how you got started into archery. Yeah, I mean, as you said, I'm Darren Christenberry. I'm from Spencer, Indiana. I've lived in the same little town my whole life. I really couldn't find any reason to leave. But uh, archery, I don't even know why. But I was, as I was young, uh, when my parents worked, I would spend summers at my grandparents' house. And they had encyclopedias. And I found myself constantly looking up archery in the encyclopedia. And the neighbor to my grandparents' house, he was a 4-H'er and had bows and arrows, and I had friends that hunted, and anyway, it was just a huge attraction to me, and I really didn't know where archery would lead me, you know, 40-some years later. Um, I, I fell in love with it as a youngster. Um, you know, my grandma's sister's husband made me homemade bows. That's how I started. Um, when I was 15, I bought my first compound bow to try bow hunting, got out of it in 16, 17, 18, those early years of hot rods and chasing girls, you know, <laughs> and, and then, then in 1991, I walked into a local pro shop that I had driven by a hundred times and it said indoor range. And I thought who in the world, who in the right mind would shoot a bow indoors and, um, Stopped in there one day, and the rest is history. I'm now working in the industry. Uh, archery is my life. My whole house is set up around a, a basement workshop. I have a 30 by 70 indoor range. I have 60 some 3D targets, and you name it, I've got it archery related. And archery is pretty much my life. That's cool. It's you know I I always. Uh, Kind of, kind of on just a lifestyle standpoint, you know, hands down, archery is great, but it doesn't matter whether you're passionate about archery or sewing or whatever else, right? I really like to see someone get into something, be excited about it, and then design their life around what excites them because it's a different lifestyle. You know, it, it, it's no longer something that you have to do. It's something that you need to do. It, it really is. And it's, if you took it away from me, I, I just don't know what I, I don't know what I'd be doing and I don't know where I would have ended up or what my life would be like, because like I said, at 21, uh, an age where you could get in trouble if you weren't careful, my whole world <laughs> revolved around archery. And here I am, you know, 31 years later and my whole world still revolves around archery. Right, right. And, and that's what, what a good place for it to revolve around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> I, I agree. The opportunities that archery's given me, you know, like I said, I work in the industry, so you know, my life, my livelihood is from the archery industry. But I was on a World Cup team in 2010 or 11. Went to Croatia and Turkey. I went to Australia in 2007 and 2009 to shoot their 3D nationals. So I've traveled a, a lot of places I probably would have never been able to travel without the sport of archery. Right. So, you know, obviously when, when I have guests come on the show, I have them fill out a little bit of a questionnaire. So I know a little bit about them and things like that. And one of the things that you mentioned was also getting started by making your own bows. Um, yeah. That is very intriguing to me. So kind of kind of walk me through that whole process and what you were making them out of. And <laughs> it just well, sounds awesome. And, and, and it might be a little misleading. I really wasn't making bows when I said earlier, my grandma's sister's husband, he would take me, we, we would visit them. He would take me to the back and find these willow limbs, whatever he could find that he could make a makeshift bow out of and use a work boot string and literally make a bow out of a branch and cut me these, you know, homemade arrows that were crooked as could be, but I could run around and pretend like I actually had something, you know, and I don't know if that's, <laughs> I don't know if that's what fueled the fire. Uh, if that's what continued to, you know, create the passion that I had for archery, but I remember it at a young age doing that. And I guess that's how it all started. <laughs> that is so awesome. That kind of reminds me, you know, back when I was, gosh, four, five, maybe three, my, my mom and dad had got me a bow, you know, and little itty bitty compounds. <clears throat> and mm -hmm. I remember what the one arrow I had left, cause I already done lost all the others. Right. I took this, uh, this rubber ball that was actually, it was a face and it had, you know, it had like a molded smiley face or whatever. And I put that on the end of the arrow and, <laughs> and I just remember just standing in the yard and just letting it, you know, right up in the straight up in the air and letting it go and just watching it and then running away yeah. from the arrow. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, when my dad Kmart, if, if people are young enough or old enough to know what Kmart was, it right. Was, yeah. That, he bought me my first real bow kit at Kmart. And the only thing I wanted to do, we had a big hill or a bank behind our house. And it was kind of a, a bowl shape from our, our house to our neighbor's property. I would stand at the top of the bowl on one side and I would shoot those arrows up in there just because I wanted to watch them fly. Yeah. That's all I did. You know, <laughs> I wasn't shooting at anything. It was like, let's just see how far we can make this one go. I'd run and get it and I'd shoot it back across the bank. So yeah, as, as long as I can remember, I've been flinging arrows for uh, some purpose and from some not so purposeful arrows, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, not that archery isn't still fun now, but it's, it's interesting to notice that transformation from, I'm literally doing this only for fun. And mm -hmm. then it starts getting more into being serious and wanting to hit where you're actually aiming and holding it together, whether it be hunting or targets or tournaments, you know, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, the transformation's crazy, you know? It, it is. It's an addiction to me because, you know, like I said, I started off shooting arrows from bank to bank just to watch the arrow fly. Yeah. When I when I turned 15, I was working, making, I'd always had a job delivering papers, cutting grass, bailing hay, you name it. I was always doing something to make money. Well, I wanted to buy a real compound bow and I didn't have a driver's license, but my cousin did. And he took me to Macmillan Sporting Goods in Terre Haute, Indiana. And this would have been in 1985. 
and I bought a Martin Tiger compound bow. We came home to our local bait shop, which was Spencer Bait and Tackle, owned by Gene Arnold, and he set us up with aluminum arrows with feathers and finger tabs, and we were home flinging arrows, thinking we were going to go kill a deer. Well, I couldn't hit water if I fell out of a boat with a bow and arrow, So, but I was trying, you know, um, and that's kind of how it started. I got into the real part then, uh, and then, like I said, I got out of, it, out of it for a few years, but then in 1991, six years later, that's when I took the real deep plunge and I've been addicted to it ever since. That's so cool. So, you know, when you, when you took the real deep plunge and you became addicted to it, um, was your, was your first step to start hitting tournaments and things like that? Or did you start focusing more on the hunting side of it? Um, you know, what, what did that kind of look like? I, I, when I was 15, I, I got into it, like I said, to hunt. At 21, I had walked into Parker's Archery, my local shop here in Spencer, which is still in business. They're four and a half miles down the road from where I live. We walked in there during a league night. They were having okay, a target league. Okay, I got gotcha. you. So I saw the purple Pearson Classic 300s, the all the fancy colored target bows and was like, holy smokes. Well, my father-in-law to be the late, the girl I was dating at the time, um, her dad had an old Darton. I didn't have any stuff. I'd gotten rid of all my stuff. He's like, Hey, I got an old boat home if you want to try it. So again, I went to Parker's bought some arrows, joined their league. My goal was to just try to hit the target at first. I couldn't, you know, and if I hit a bullseye, it was like a, a, a miracle, you know, it, it was awesome. And that just fueled it. I started shooting the league. They had an indoor 3D league on like Thursday nights. We started a 3D archery club. I was one of the officers in the club. So I got to work the event, set the targets, uh, work. I mean, I was just involved in everything archery. And that started fueling the fire for accuracy. I could see what the top dogs in our local area were doing. I was far from that, but I had goals. I was like, I want to be like those guys are. So it just continued to fuel the fire for me to get better and better. Then I started learning, hey, you can shoot arrows for money. I want to do I want to do that too, you know. Yeah, so absolutely. It just it continued to snowball and you know, the early 2000s I had some really good years as a professional archer. So uh, so I don't mean to cut you off there. Um yeah. but that that brings up a cool point to me is walk take me all the way back to the first tournament you did. You know, because you mentioned you started the club and you were shooting mm -hmm. at the leagues and things like that. But what about the first tournament that you decided to do? Which one was it? And, uh, and, and how, you know, what were your thoughts and your feelings and things like that towards that first the, tournament? The, the first, what I would call decent tournament we shot, the guys that I ran around with, Mike Allgood, Harvey Heyer. Uh, golly, Joe Steins was a guy that traveled with us at the time. These are, I'm bringing up some names that I haven't talked about in years, but we were, we're an IBO country, you know? So the mm -hmm, first mm -hmm. leg, first leg of the triple crown was at, uh, uh, oh darn it. It was in Bedford, Indiana, white river bow hunters hosted the first leg of the triple crown for years in Bedford, Indiana, which is about 40 minutes South of me. And that's where I, I drove to Indianapolis to buy a new dozen aluminum arrows, came home and fletched them up with the exact color scheme that I had to have. And I was ready to shoot my first national event. That's really the tournament that really sticks out to me the most. And I wasn't very good at the time, but I was shooting national tournaments as an archer, you know. Um, then I started shooting all the Triple Crown, went to Erie, Pennsylvania, went to Nelsonville, Ohio, went to the IBO Worlds. 
uh, I think 1994 in Flatwoods, West Virginia would have been my first IBO world tournament. And then seeing all the potential watching professional archers, which I had no idea existed, but watching pros shoot off, um, that again, just continued to snowball and build the, uh, fuel the fire. Yeah, for sure. It, it's kind of, you know, I, I, uh, the first one I actually went to was Vegas worlds. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, um, I, I haven't shot all that many tournaments. I spend much more time hunting with my bow. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I went and, uh, and I didn't even compete. I was just there. Um, my, my wife at the time was competing and I was just there doing podcasts with people and things like that. But it was crazy to me to see, <laughs> you know, the number of people there and the youth that were there. And, and it was just, it was cool seeing people come together as a community and truly, truly help each other and just enjoy it, you know? Yeah, it, it's a big family, family atmosphere, I call it. You know, some of my best friends I have met over the years in archery. Yeah. Um, and, and we don't even live close to each other, but I still consider them my best friends just because I've known them for all these years. We talk every week. I see them at every tournament. And when you shoot 20 plus tournaments a year, you spend a lot of time with that family. So it, uh, it creates this bond with people, um, you know, like Vegas this year, we just got back from Vegas a little over a week ago, record numbers, um, people there from 50 some countries. It's just, uh, Archery is an addictive sport, and I'm glad I'm a part of it. Yeah, 100%. 100%. So um, kind of going going back in time one more, one more instance, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because like I mentioned, I'm a little more on the hunting side. Um, what was your first animal with a bow? And how long did you hunt before you were, you were able to shoot your first animal with your bow? My first animal would have been a white-tailed doe. Um, Golly, that would have been... I started hunting when I was 15, so 85. I didn't have archery gear for 86, 87, 88, 89, 90. Started back again in 91. It probably would have been... Oh, gosh, it probably would have been 95. 95, I killed my first couple big deer with a gun. So it would have been 96 or 97 when I killed my first deer with a bow. Okay. And like, what, what were, what were some of the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions that, you know, cause I, I remember my first animal with a bow, like, it's like, gosh, like it was yesterday and it was 17 years ago. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well <know>? it, it, <laughs> I remember it didn't come without failures. I missed, <laughs> you know, I, I missed several and I did. I, I used to, I used to hunt from the ground. I would sit on the ground yep. by the tree. Me or too. If, if I got in a tree stand, it was like six foot off the ground. I didn't know what I was doing, right. you know, but I did. I do remember the first deer that I lost. I had a doe walk by me at like point Blake range and I was so tore up. I mean, I couldn't miss her. I could just about poke her with the arrow, but I shot this deer and she ran off and I have no idea what happened to her. I didn't find her obviously. And probably two, three years later before I did take my first animal, but I remember, uh, excuse me, I remember being so excited because I actually aimed the bow, placed the shot where I wanted to. And it was very fast, very quick, very like, holy smokes, look what I just did, (laughs) you know, and 
there was a thrill to that where as the years have gone by, maybe it be, you know, social media or, you know, people's pride or bragging rights, whatever. Um, I couldn't care less about shooting a doe right now. I really, as the older I get, I, I don't particularly like to see things die. I guess I'm getting soft as I get older, but I still don't have trouble <laughs> hunting a big buck. You know, right, I don't mind right. hunting a big buck and, but I'm very picky about what I shoot. I've got several deer on the wall that I've taken from Illinois or Kansas or here in Indiana. So unless it's something special, I don't even really pick my bow up off the bow hook anymore. It's like, I enjoy being in the woods. I enjoy reminiscing on all the things I've done in the past, but it has to be something pretty special for me to try to harvest it now. Yeah, absolutely. I can understand, you know, that that's, that's an evolution as well, right? Like, yeah, you know, I, I remember looking back when I was little, it was going out and I didn't even care what we were shooting at. Even if it was the dirt, I just wanted to hear the gun go off, you know? Oh, that's, that's <laughs> me because when gun season came in and you could kill a buck, I didn't care if it was a spike buck, if it was a crooked horn, I didn't care what it was. If I saw antler, the safety was coming off and I was slinging lead, you know? So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Um, so with your, with your archery journey, um, what are, you know, what are, what are some of the things as far as skills and maybe, maybe that's tuning skills, maybe that's shooting skills. Um, maybe that's yard judgment skills. I'm not sure, um, what it might be for you, but what are some things as far as things, as far as skills that you have picked up along the way and then really honed and worked on? Yeah, I, I think, I think as a competitive archer, when I, I played the indoor game, the FIDA game, the 3D game, I've played all these archery disciplines. Um, so you you find skill sets uh, in each one, I, I think, and you can hone them to be – you can be mediocre at all of them or you can be an expert at a few. And I think that's why you see – a lot of guys dominate in certain venues, you know, Levi Morgan, Dan McCarthy on the unknown 3d side, you got Chris Perkins and, you know, Justin Hanna, just to name a couple on the known pro side that are just always killing it with big scores. They've got shooting skills or they've got, they've got accuracy skills. Um, I, I feel like I've gained a skill set in a lot of areas and I may not be a master at everything, but, Arrow building, I love to build arrows. And if you talk to the majority of archers, they hate fletching arrows. I love fletching them. I love building them. That's the projectile that you're sending down range. That's that's how you get the score that's on your scorecard. You know, you have the ability to create these things and make them as perfect as you can and create something that enhances your shooting ability or your flaws. So I think that's an addiction of mine was arrow building. Tuning is I like to keep things simple, but I do have a tuning skill set. I used to build my own strings and cables for years. No I kidding. Probably, yeah, I'm not supposed to say that because I shot for Matthews for 11 years, but <laughs> Nathan Brooks Nathan Brooks had B2 bowstrings at the time. He would build my split yokes because I hated doing yokes, but I would build all my own solo cam strings to look exactly like a factory Matthews string because I wanted to have my hands on that. I was building my arrows. I was making my strings. I was tuning my bow. When I had failures or successes, I had a lot to do with that. And that's part of the attraction to me. So, um, shooting, you know, uh, release execution. I fought target panic. I used to be a pretty darn good 
button shooter, thumb trigger shooter. I fought target panic from playing with the FIDA and shooting the World Cup stuff. Had to switch to a back tension, and it took a lot of years to really get a good hold on that. So I've been through all the ups and downs and the emotional roller coaster of target panic. And so release execution, I could write a book on it pretty much, you know, is it right or wrong? (laughs) Uh, That's, that's for people to determine, but I know what works well for me. So I'm kind of a Jack of all trades when it comes to skill and maybe not a master of any, but uh, I think you obtain uh, and acquire a set of skills regardless of what discipline of archery you play, but you, you get to work on a lot of different skill sets. You know, something uh, as you were discussing all that, because I, ag- I agree with that as well, uh, and something that came up uh, while you were saying all that was how you mentioned the the tuning and how you mentioned keeping it simple, but the the and then you dove into obviously building your own strings and mm-hmm. you know there's there's certain things that i do as well and you know you know maybe maybe we can dive into discussing about some arrow building stuff because you know there's certain things that i do as well that am i a good enough shooter to really realize the difference maybe not but mm-hmm. does doing that give me confidence in my setup absolutely 100 percent. and, and yeah, that's, that's something that i stress with people when when we start talking about things they're like well i i don't even think i could tell the difference and i said you might not be able to shoot and tell the difference but if it gives you confidence that's that might be the difference that you need yeah and that's that's a great way to put it because i know you know, go back 20 years. I didn't know squat about tuning paper tune. That was it. I mean, you shot till you got a bullet hole and you ran with it. You know, yep. we had solo, we had, we had solo cam bows, you know, you were fighting some sort of knock. Hell, I didn't even paper time. tune. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know and, about it. <laughs> no. And, and I could go back and look at, you know, some of the, when I had some indoor, I've never, I was a decent indoor shooter. I was, I, I could be in the mix. I finished third at Vegas in 2007. I cleaned indoor nationals with 120 X's at one time. And I know if I shot those bow setups and arrow setups through paper, I would get some kind of funky knock high left hair. Right? I know I would. Yeah. And, and, and now with the technology and all the information that's right at our fingertips, and I find myself getting sucked into the rabbit hole too, bear shaft tuning. I never did it before because the pay value was so crappy meaning I could spend an hour or two hours shimming a cam, moving knocking points, moving rest, doing all this stuff, and then never see one ounce of difference in what I had in my crappy tune setup. You know, I could spend all this time, you know, hyper tuning, whatever these people call it, and never see a difference. But now technology is so good, so simple, it's so easy to do and try. I find myself bear shaft tuning, you know, uh, torque tuning, which I'm still not a big fan of torque tuning. Uh, but a lot of people do all these different methods. And again, are you a good enough shooter to know the difference? Some people probably aren't, but does it give you the confidence to believe that you have checked all the boxes and you're stepping up to the stake with the absolute best setup you can have? Yes, I do. And I think that's key. Confidence is half the battle when you get on an archery field. Isn't that the truth? And, and I, I've, I've had that exact same thing where I shot a bow that, you know, I was just shooting it lights out, 
but as soon as I stepped in front of paper and shot it, it was like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. And then you, and then you instantly start changing stuff because people told you you had to, you know, yeah. hey, it's not, you're not shooting a bullet hole. You should do this. Well, crap. I just proved to myself that this untuned bow will repeat every single time. Uh, yeah, there's, there's some things that make them more forgiving to human error. For sure. And you know, you know, uh, one of the tuning that, that has, done the best for me out of anything so i'll start with a paper tune Mm -hmm. and and obviously i I would love your input on this because you have been doing archery for i mean don't mean to age you or age me but as long as i've been alive so (laughs) (laughs) Um, i definitely want your input i love learning from people that that know way more you know um but i'll you know i'll start with a paper tune and then i'll walk back tune and for, I guess maybe for people out there that don't know, um, a walk back tune is essentially perfecting that your, that your arrow is flying straight out of your bow. And you, you find this, uh, from what I find, right. You find out the farther that you get, your arrow may be slightly coming out left or right. And that's why you're getting arrow drift left or right. And mm-hmm. I've, I have found that when I start with a paper tune and then I take that as my next step. So you shoot right next to the target. And when you're right next to the target, you're moving your sight. And then I go all the way back to 80 or a hundred yards and I shoot. Um, and then I'm seeing if my arrow is slightly left coming out of the blow or slightly right. Because if you think about your arrow flying straight, it should fly straight. If your arrow is slightly one way or the other, it's going to be drifting that way because of the way the fletchings are. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have found that taking that as my next step after paper tuning, I I don't go paper tune again. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I take that step and my, my groupings and my confidence from zero out to a hundred are astronomically better than if I just paper tune and then try and shoot my bow. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I usually typically start with a paper tune just to see what my arrow is doing. Mm-hmm. But like I mentioned briefly before, with especially our bows, I work for Elite Archery in the Outdoor Group. Our oh, okay. bows with set, with set technology, it's so simple to adjust arrow flight with a 532nd Allen wrench that I find myself doing a lot of bear shaft tuning. And I know if I can get my flat shaft and bear shaft to hit at 20 yards, when I step outside at 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, nine times out of 10, or maybe even a higher ratio than that, a walk back tune per se is irrelevant. I don't need to do it. Gotcha. Um, I just don't, I can skip that step. And I, I just proved it the other day. I built a 3D bow before we went to Vegas, had been running a lot of arrows through it. Well, then when we got home from Vegas, I tied my peep in, you know, really made sure it was where I want it. And we've had some really nice weather this past weekend. So I've got to shoot an unusually amount of arrows outside prior to the ASA tournament that's coming up next week. So I was able to check all my work. I could shoot a bear shaft, flat shaft at 20 yards, hit a super X or keep them in the 10 every time at 20 yards. And I stood out there. My first arrow at 40 on a black board was almost dead center of the 12. My next arrow at 60 was just barely right of the 12. And that's not because of the tune. That's because of where I'm aiming. But my bow shoots as good as I can shoot it. And after repetition and multiple times of checking my marks and my tune and, okay, let's check the bear shaft again, I've checked all my work. I can't get my bow any better than I have it right now. So everything else is left up to me. If I make a mistake, it's human error. You know, and I think a lot of people, a lot of people 
may take for granted or maybe they don't know if they're tuning paper tuning bear shaft tuning whatever if you can't duplicate the exact same shot every single time bear shaft tuning shouldn't even be in your repertoire it just you shouldn't even be trying it you know you have to shoot the exact same shot with the exact same grip pressures with the almost exact same timing to get some consistency or you're just going to be making adjustments every single shot and chasing your tail so shoot you have to put some focus on you Make sure you're doing your part and right. you can do it consistently before you go to these very advanced steps of tuning. Because if you're not a honed archer shooting consistent shots every single time, you're just chasing your tail trying to super tune something. Absolutely. I, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, so so two th- couple things came out of that that I, that I really want to dive deeper in. One, I definitely want to go through um, your arrow tuning process and arrow building process. Mm-hmm. But what I'm, one thing I'm curious about is if the arrow building and arrow tuning process comes before or after you are bear shaft tuning. Um, and I wonder that because if you are obviously trying to get your bear shaft and your fletch shaft together, are you mm-hmm. shooting your already tuned arrow as you're shooting that against the bear shaft? Um, Base, basically, yes. Basically, I mean, there's a lot of variables in there. If I'm, I pretty much know um, what arrow I want to shoot come you know new bow season new archery season and what i'm currently shooting right now is a super drive 25 easton um it's 28 and three quarter i think carbon to carbon and last year i shot them with 125 grain points well this year our new bow is a little faster but i was comfortable with the draw weight i was comfortable with the holding weight i was comfortable with the aim so I changed my arrow to suit my bow. My arrow was shooting 302, which is too fast. So I went to 150 grain points. So first thing I do when I build arrows is when I take them out of the package, I spin test every single one. I'm looking for variants on the front. I'm looking for variants on the back, especially on carbon and OCD, call it whatever you want. My labels have to match. So okay. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't, I don't take an inch off one and a quarter inch off another and two inches off of one and a half inch off another. I find the biggest variance. If I have to cut three quarters of an inch off to clear this one arrow up, I'm going to take three quarters of an inch off of every single shaft because I want all my labels to match up. But then I put in bushings. I put in points. I spin test everything, every component. I want to make sure my knock's spinning true. I want to make sure my point's spinning true. Do you use and pin knocks? I use. I I have at times, but I'm current. I'm currently using G bushings on my arrows that okay. use like the deep deep six four millimeter or the IP four from AAE. That's the two knocks I'm playing with right now. But if it doesn't spin true on my spin tester, either on the knock in or point in, it goes to the corner. You know, I may only get, I may get 10 or 11 arrows out of a dozen. I may get 12 perfect arrows out of a dozen, but I've seen times where I may only get nine arrows out of that dozen that I feel like are as perfect as I want them to shoot. Because uh, if you make a little bit of a mistake with a marginally good arrow, it's magnified, you know? So um, I shoot them through paper. I, I never did this for years. Tim Gillingham is probably one of the most educated uh, and experienced arrow builders, arrow tuners, just a guy that's has a general knowledge of everything arrows. Tim paper tunes these arrows. I never did that for years because I shot aluminum most of the time. Aluminum was the most consistent from day to day, week to week, month to month, batch to batch, dozen to dozen. 
there was no reason for me to do that. And I never did. It was crazy. I'd make a shoot down in an ASA. I would build six brand new arrows that I had never even shot before. And that's the arrows I would take into the shoot off. And he thought I was crazy, which I probably was for doing that. But that's how much confident I had confidence I had in my build and my equipment. So it really didn't matter. But now with the carbon, uh, the, the difference in spines, the consistencies, whatever aspect it is, I do paper to them to make sure they're reacting the same. But then my final test is, can I put them where my pin is every time they fire. Are there no surprises? If I know my pin breaks at six o'clock, is that arrow hitting at six o'clock? I want to be very well in tune with my equipment, but there's a lot of steps, but I try to make sure everything's as perfect as I can, as it can be. That way, the only thing I can put pressure on is myself to perform. All I have to do is execute. My equipment's as good as I can get it. Gotcha. Yeah. I, obviously like you mentioned you you said rabbit hole <laughs> and yeah, yeah. and you can you can get down so many rabbit holes but i think with the confidence that comes along with it i i enjoy it uh as well so um i i have never actually bear shaft tuned um so if i go through and i and i work on my arrows and i do all that stuff i make sure they spin correctly and everything like that i'm now going to um sometimes so some some arrows i have i have shot through paper and Mm -hmm. uh I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't have to have the, <laughs> the logos all in the same spot. Sometimes I actually wipe them off with, uh, <laughs> then, I, th- then I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a good resolution. There you go. Um, but I've noticed, you know, as I'm, as I'm doing that, um, some of them will need a quarter turn or whatever, and then I'll have a perfect bullet hole with all my bear shafts. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I'm at that point, I'm going to go in and actually bear shaft tune, my bow with a fletch shaft and a bear shaft, or Mm -hmm. do I shoot a fletch shaft through paper first? I, I shoot until I get the fletch shaft as close as I think it could be now, depending on, depending on the paper, you can look at, I see pictures all the time on social media and they're like, man, first two shots, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Ooh, that's a little knock right. Or Ooh, that's a little knock left. They still look really nice, but the bear shaft will tell you how perfect you have it. When I get it super, super close through paper, if I can get almost a bullet hole through paper with a flat shaft, I will stand there and side in with my three arrows that I've built, two air, whatever, however many arrows I've built for this test. I will side them in until I feel like, okay, I've got this thing pounding. Then as I have that flat shaft sided in, I'll shoot the bear shaft. Now, bear shaft is the exact same bullet, exact same color knock, something that spins true on the knock in and the point in. And I've also put electrical tape where the fletching would be to get and my arrow currently weighs 413 grains. Okay. If I didn't have the if I didn't have the fletching on there, it would weigh 390 ish to at 400. So I'm wrapping. 13 to 15 grains of electrical tape flat against the tail end of the shaft. So the arrow reacts like it is a flat shaft, but it's truly has no guidance because the tape's just, it's just representing the weight. weight. It's just the weight of the wrap or the fletching. So I will stand there and shoot that arrow probably multiple times, spin the knock, even, you know, 120 degrees, spin the knock 120 degrees and shoot it a dozen times or more and see if the bear shaft will repeat. If it's hitting four inches to the right of my flat shaft, I'm getting a knock left tear 
truly getting a little bit of a knock left tear through paper. If it's tear, if it's hitting four inches to the left, I'm getting a little bit of a knock right tear through paper that I really can't see with the flat shaft because it's correcting immediately or it's acting stiff or whatever it is. But the bear shaft will give you the true tell of exactly what your arrow is doing. Is it that important on a target shaft when you're shooting indoors? No, it's not because there's no wind. It's all a controlled environment. You've got perfect lighting. You can shoot great big fat feathers if you want to to guide that arrow to the 20 yard spot. Not a big deal. Right. Probably not. Probably not so crucial out to a 50 yard 3D range. But when you start putting a broadhead on the front of that for all the bow hunters out there. If you're getting that little bit of a variance left and right with a bear shaft, your broadhead is going to be a true tell of how tuned your bow is. That's why the simple fix for people screw on a mechanical. I can't get my fixed blades to hit. It's not the broadhead. It's it's the tune of your bow. You know, it's the it, it could be a it could be a lot of different variables that were talked about. But the bear shaft to me now is triple checking my work. If I can get that bear shaft to hit exactly with my flat shaft. I can go to 60 yards and that thing will shoot right down the pipe. And that's, like I said, nine times out of 10, 90% of the time, I don't have to make any more adjustments. Okay. So let's, let's just now, now you're there and you're working on obviously, uh, off uh, getting the, the bear shaft hit as close to the flesh shaft as you can. Um, Mm -hmm. that that's really interesting. Um, not really interesting idea. It's a great idea to put a piece of electrical tape around the back end to simulate the weight of the fletching. Um, that's awesome. Uh, so you shoot your fletch shaft, you hit bullseye, you shoot your bear shaft and it is, it's high, right? What are you, are you working on? yokes are you working on cam spacing are you moving the the arrow rest like what what is your step to fix that is or an issue like that i'm moving if for up and down i'm moving my arrow rest most of the time if i have my knocking point set where i like it which i measure (laughs) straight i measure straight back through the dead center of the burger butt holes 90 degrees to the string and then i go up an eighth of an inch that's the top and top of my knocking point on every single bow i set up so I know my knocking points where I want it. And if I'm getting high and low, I will correct that with the arrow rest 99 times out of a hundred. That's how I correct that. Um, anything left and right. If I like my center shot position, you know, we'll be anywhere from 13 sixteenths to seven eighths all the way out to 15 sixteenths, depending on the bow poundage, draw length, et cetera, for the elites. But I start at usually, 13 sixteenths to seven eighths is my center shot on all my bows. So if I like my center shot, I like my knocking point. If I've corrected the up and down with my arrow rest, but I'm still getting a little left and right. I use the set technology on elite. I would use a yoke on a Hoyt or something else to correct that issue. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause that's, 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 uh, that's something that I've always, you know, that always goes, that always runs through my brain. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I've shot, oh, just this last year I did a big head to head bow test and I had five different bow companies and it was always, uh, you know, like, uh, messing with, uh, I didn't have bow tech in this specific test, but I shot bow tech for a while and I was like, okay, I got, like you said, I got my arrow at 90 degrees going through the burger button, burger hole. That's what I want. I have mm-hmm. my rest perfect, uh, perfectly perpendicular to, um, or parallel, sorry, parallel with the riser. So I know that it's going straight down 
And then I would utilize the yokes to start fixing left and right tears. Yep. Um, what I have always struggled with is finding where that information is from the company as to what their specific bow prefers. Gotcha. Does, that, does that make sense? It, it, it does. And ours is, ours is pretty simple because like I said, set technology has been a, uh, uh, an earth shattering piece of technology for us because you tune it right there on the line. No bow press needed Five thirty second Allen wrench. And we've got videos of Nathan Brooks and I, there's a lot of information about set technology. Uh, and again, you can, you can do that. You can use your arrow rest. You can change cam spacing. You can twist jokes. I mean, there's so many things you can do that you can almost do too much. There's right. almost too much. There's almost too much adjustment on bows anymore. I mean, it really is. And I, I, I find, I find that almost as a crutch at times. Oh, I need to check this. Oh, I need to check that. I have something I can blame to where if I was just standing there executing consistently and perfectly, the bow's just a machine. It should repeat every single time, whether it's tuned or not. It's just certain tunes may react to human error a little better than others. So I think that's the importance of tuning and finding right arrow build, finding is the bear shaft tune your answer. Do you need to run a little knock higher, you know, a little knock high right or knock high left hair? Do you need to initiate some some movement in your arrow so it corrects better? So there's a lot of different a perfect bullet hole and a perfect bear shaft tune may not shoot the best for a certain archer. It just may not. So I think you personally have to find what works best for you. And then you collect that data over time and say, okay, this is where I want to, this is my baseline for tuning and then make small adjustments from there. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. That's that, that uh, that's, that's like gold. What you just said. Um, you know, it's, it saying that your bow has to, be shooting a bullet hole for you to shoot good is like saying every person that drives a vehicle has to drive a Dodge because (laughs) the Dodge is there. Yep. You know, and, and I think that's much like you said, somewhere along the line, somebody heard you need a bullet hole with paper or you got heard that from who knows someone. Cause obviously that's where archers start yeah. every every archer i've ever watched from levi morgan to yourself to um tim gillingham you know it's like yep shoot through paper see where it's at and it's what they what i think fails it never gets really talked about is what you just mentioned after you get there that's just a starting point then you make it all fit you your shooting yeah. style and make it as forgiving for you and then don't shoot it through paper again. <laughs> yeah. 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 Don't, don't check. And I think the, I think the final test for me is I shoot a good surprise shot. I'm aiming my bow. I'm adding nice tension. I'm trying to really execute a good shot. And as soon as that release breaks, my mind takes a mental snapshot. It takes a little picture of uh, instantaneously of where my pin is in reference to the target I'm aiming at. And if my arrow lands exactly where my pin was, I'm in full sync with my bow. And I'm honest with myself, you know. I don't stand there and shoot a dozen arrows and be like, well, crap, why did I miss the dot six times out of 12? You know, did my pin, was was my pin in the dot all 12 times when it fired? Some people may not be completely honest with themselves, but I try to watch 
exactly what's going on on my shot and be honest, you know, no, my bow, I dipped a little bit when that one fired or, you know, I held that one a little bit too long. It should be to the right. If I shoot a perfect shot, it should hit right exactly where my pin was. And if it does, I can't get my bow to react any better than that. It's just up to me to find that consistency through the 30 arrows at Vegas, the 60 arrows at nationals, the, the 40 arrows on the 3d range. How consistent can I shoot my equipment now? So I just, I guess I'm pretty honest with myself when I'm setting this up and tuning and practicing. I don't want any surprises. I don't want to break dead in the middle and my arrow hit two inches high, right? Why is that? And if that does happen, then I'm looking, is it a bad arrow? You know, did I do something weird? Did I knock it upside down? Has something moved? Has something changed? That's when I start checking my work. Yeah, for sure. And the consistency, you know, you, you touched on it a couple of times throughout there, but I am, I, I can tell when, when I am being consistent and when I'm not, because all of a sudden mm-hmm. things just start going haywire. <laughs> like, all yeah. right, it might be time for a break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I saw it the other day. I've been shooting a, I got some targets set out and I was shooting a black boar at 47 yards. And I was like, I'm going to see if I can group some arrows right down around that lower 12. And I shot the first one and my knock looked way high. I'm like, crap, I wait, I shot. And I felt like I fired a pretty good shot. Well, then I pulled up my binoculars and I was right in the top of the 12, just had this weird kick. And my second arrow, I'm like, boom, all oh, that fired nice. My knock ended up way to the right. I'm like, shoo, that's way right. Uh, it didn't think anything about it. So I'm sitting here thinking I may not be, may not have the greatest tomb until I pull my binoculars up. And then all three of my arrows are like in a one inch group down there. Yeah. It's just where th- these knocks were giving me these tails instantly of, man, that's way right. Man, that's way high. Man, that's low left. But until I looked at the target, I was actually firing good shots that I thought I was firing, but the knocks where they hit the target was like, Ooh, gosh, that's, that's not even close. So, uh, it just, it, there's just different things where I check boxes, recheck my work. If I can stand here, my, if you can't do it in your yard, in the comfort of your own home or the comfort of your local range, if you can't shoot those perfect shots or get the results you're looking for, you're probably not going to get it at the tournament. So it, uh, just another, just another way I, I check my work and my tune and, and build my confidence in my setup. Yeah. Yeah. And there we go. Talking about the confidence thing. (laughs) Yep. Yep. (laughs) It's so true though. I mean, whether, whether you be on the line, whether you be on a hunt and you miss a shot that you don't think you should have, or, or you, you make a great shot that you're like, how the hell did that happen? You know, I'm not sure how I pulled that one together. Yeah. Um, It's a, it's a, I think it's a lot easier for me to stand there and shoot an aggressive, confident shot and be good with whatever results I get as to stand there and be timid and, oh, crap, this is for $10,000, or what if I miss, or, oh, man, I hope I don't embarrass myself too bad. If I shoot with hesitation, I'm going to get crappy results. But if I stand there with confidence and, you know, fire it with commitment, man, I'm going to take the results, whatever it is, I just, I I perform so much better. Yeah. Uh, You know, uh, the one of the last things I, I well first off I'd love to have you back on the podcast there and I, <laughs> I I could talk more archery with you like we're already we're already at 46 minutes and, wow. and yeah it's wild um so with that one of the, the last things that I'm kind of curious about at least for this episode is um I am wondering about your experience with uh micro shafts versus uh, you know, your normal diameter, you're like your five millimeters. Um, mm-hmm. because my, what I, what I'm curious about 
is, you know, you start, you all these, these micro shafts are starting to pop up and and they have been for a while. Right. Um, but I look at the micro shaft and I look at the cost and it's, sometimes $6 an arrow more than say yeah. like your, your normal size shaft. And so I am curious, um, if, if you have any testing background on this subject or any experience with it, cause I'm oh, curious yeah. like wind wise, what, you know, that's one thing wind wise, mm-hmm. how much the, how much less the wind truly affects a four millimeter versus a five millimeter. I'm also curious how much more penetration you truly get between a four millimeter and a five millimeter. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and the reason I'm wondering all that is, is not to not really to not get people to buy the micro shafts. Um, I think if they weren't doing something better, people wouldn't be getting them and they companies wouldn't be making them. <clears throat> I am selfishly more for my own thing. I'm fixing to build a whole bunch of arrows and I'm like, man, these micro shafts that I want are like, <laughs> I don't even know. They're like $8 more than the other shafts I was looking at. And it's like, man, I should probably figure out if they're really going to give me $8 more of, of, <laughs> yeah. of everything. <laughs> right. Right. I, I, that's, that's, uh, I mean, that's such a, uh, gosh, that's another 46 minute conversation. Isn't it? We have. Well, maybe we can I, just I, leave that for a next podcast. <laughs> we, we could, we could go into more detail, but I, I think, with the technology and with the ease that the new bows tune, Bowtech, Elite, you know, top hats on a Matthews, you know, it's not hard to change things to make stuff work. Small arrows, micro arrows, I think are harder to tune. There's a smaller surface area that you're putting that power stroke of the bow behind. Uh, you know, spine is probably a little more crucial. The length of your arrow uh, which affects that spine is probably a little more crucial. But I think as technology gets better, as people get more accurate, as people learn to shoot longer distances, the smaller arrows with the right tune and the right size fletching, they're awesome at long distance. I mean, you can extend your range by exponential. I mean, you can go from, hey, I'm comfortable shooting stuff at 40 to I'm now comfortable shooting stuff at 80 because my stuff's that good. Right. Um, so I do I do like the small diameter arrows. I mean, Easton's, X10's, X10 Pro Tours, uh, ACE's, ACC's, you name it, I've shot them. Uh, if you were a, an Olympian and you're not shooting X10's, you can't compete. If you were on the World Cup Tour shooting a compound and you weren't shooting pro tours you can't compete or most likely didn't compete it's just there's specific arrows for specific builds and for specific setups that do make a difference so if you're going to shoot 40 yards and in in the midwest hunting white-tailed deer probably doesn't matter what you shoot you can shoot a a 24 13 aluminum have success but if you're out west if you're shooting elk or you know pronghorn or mule deer in the wide open prairie I think these micro diameter arrows with a, a smaller four fletch and a really good tuned head, man, I just think you extend your range. So I think there is some benefit or some, some pay value to that. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and, and as I mentioned to you, you know, hunting is my thing and I do live out West. I'm in Wyoming. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so I am, <clears throat> when I go to design my arrow, you know, I, I am, 
much more interested in something that's going to fly excellent um, as well as not struggle as you know a minimum amount of struggle as I can get in the wind because not that it's ever windy in Wyoming but I think it almost blew away my trash can yesterday Um, (laughs) (laughs) I guarantee you you know so I you know I'm always looking into solutions to help my arrow do better in the wind if possible. And, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm also looking, you know, spot and stock. Like, uh, would I, would I love to shoot every animal at, at 31 yards for sure? 100%. But the reality of it is I'm not going to be able to close the distance every time to 30 yards. So right. I want to <clears throat> shoot the best arrow, whether it be four millimeter or five millimeter, you know, I, I do agree with you where I think those longer distance shot, I'm, I guess put it this way, if I were to, you know, throw a, a plastic baseball bat out there yep. and I was to throw um, like an arrow shaft, which one is the wind going to affect more? Obviously, the baseball bat is bigger. It's got yeah. more surface area. So I I don't know how it couldn't fly better. Um, yeah. But at the same point, you still got to make a great shot. Um, you got to have yep. it tuned as, as well. I think it's got to be spinning true. So I think there's a lot that probably goes into it, but for sure. Yeah, and there's it's a law of averages on everything too. I mean, it, when you when I think of my arrows, I think of airplanes. You don't right. have you don't have a great big airplane with little bitty wings, and you don't have a little big airplane with great big wings. And that's the same with your arrow. If you've got great big wings on the back and you don't have any point weight up front for those wings to steer, you have a useless projectile. But you also don't want 200 grains up front and then inch and three-quarter, three-inch or three-fletch on the back. You don't have enough steerage in the back. So I think it's a it's, you got to find a happy medium of, oh, this is what I'm trying to achieve. These are the builds I want to try. And I think point weight to fletching size ratio there. I don't know what the magic ratio is. I know what works for me. Uh, but that's something I think you have to play with. If you're going to shoot long distance, you don't want to shoot four or five inch veins on your hunting arrows. You just don't. Um, so there's, there's a law of averages with those results, but I think there's some specific builds that you'd want to try making sure you got enough steerage, making sure you have enough point weight and all that average out to make a good, accurate setup. Yep. Yeah. It's the amount of stuff that you can do and look into is just, it's just wild. Um, it is at the end of the day. Uh, you know, we obviously covered a, uh, a bunch of stuff on this podcast. Um, there is, there's a lot of different stuff that you can do to the bow. There's a lot of different stuff you can do to the arrow release, etc. cetera. Uh, but at the end of the day, if, if you're not also working on yourself as a shooter, none of that is really going to matter. And, Let's be honest, if you find something that works for you, unless you have a specific reason to change it or all of a sudden it's not working for you, um, just because somebody else says it doesn't work, if it's working for you, that's okay too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's there's really no rules. I mean, right. I'm not right. I'm not right. You're not wrong. You know, there's really no rules and there's nothing that says it can't work. There's right. some things you... There's some things I would steer away from, but there are really no rules when it comes to archery and setups and builds and accuracy and tunes. There's no rules. Right. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Darren, I can't, uh, you know, I can't thank you enough for hopping on the podcast. I, <laughs> that's already, like I said, it's been 55 minutes and, and it doesn't even wow. feel like it. So I, I appreciate you just talking archery and tuning and, uh, arrows and you kind of your background. I, I can't thank you enough for doing that. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, no problem. We didn't even, I told you we could talk for two hours. No problem. It would be no problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully in the future, you know, we can maybe, maybe we can pick one specific, um, step in tuning and maybe put a dude, you know, do a whole podcast around that or something like, you know, just like a 30 or 25 minute podcast, just around yeah. fletching arrows or just, or, you know, who knows that that yeah. might be pretty interesting. Maybe we can talk about my first win as a left-hander coming up in the near future. Maybe yeah. we can talk about that. Yeah, we can definitely <laughs> talk about that because that is actually something that, that I meant to meant to bring into the podcast because you used to shoot right-handed and then um, had to switch over to left. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a transition that I'm going through. I'm about ni- 19 months deep into it right now, but each week, each month, I'm getting better and seeing progress, and I have visions. I've been on the podium a couple times already, but I have visions of winning one of these 3D tournaments in the near future. That is wild. So so real quick, um, what what was it that, that, made you, that made you have to switch? I started developing a trimmer in my bow arm. I, again, I shot right-handed, so my bow arm is my left arm. I started getting this trimmer, and I tell people it looked like I had Parkinson's disease, and I'm not making fun of that at all. It's, I literally had a visible shake in my arm. That's that wild. Was getting, it was getting worse and worse, and I couldn't control it. I fought it for two years, and I was done. I was going to quit my job. I was going to quit archery. I was going to go back to being an electrician. And I was, I just couldn't take it anymore. And Nathan Brooks begged me, he said, Darren, it's a two-handed sport. I'm telling you, try left-handed. And just after a couple of short weeks, I could start seeing improvement. And here we are 18 or 19 months later. And man, I'm having a lot of fun with archery again. No, I'm glad you're back to having fun. It's, uh, ironically, I, when I very first started in 4-H archery, I was shooting right-handed, um, because my right arm was stronger, but I'm left eye dominant. Ah, so perfect. I started off shooting right-handed. You know, I'm, I don't know, 10 years older, whatever it was, 11. And then we told them, hey, by the way, I'm left eye dominant. And they're like, what? <laughs> you should be shooting left-handed then. That's so right. So switched me over left-handed, and I've been lefty ever since. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, at my age, I mean, I was 50, 50 and a half when I started this adventure. So if I can do it at 50, now granted, I've got a bow shop in my basement, a bow shop in my garage. I got a 20 yard indoor range. I have access to shooting 24 seven if I want it. So I've put a lot of time and effort into it, but I'm telling you at my age, if I can make the change, if you're struggling with something, do not be afraid to make the switch. Yep. Absolutely. 100%. Well, Darren, once again, uh, we will, we can dive more into that on another podcast. Cause I'd kind of like yeah. to know, you know, some of the steps you've taken, some of the procedures and practices you've done to ingrain yeah. that and get used to being left-handed. Sure. Um, and then I would again, love to dive more into some of the tuning stuff as well. Okay. That sounds good. Well, I appreciate it a bunch, Darren. Thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate talking to you.